This podcast is supported by an unrestricted educational grant provided by Medtronic. Any statements, opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations contained in the podcast are strictly those of the host and interviewee and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Medtronic or any of its affiliates, including Covidian. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute medical or professional clinical advice. Hi there, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Fraser. Today I'll be speaking with Brad Winters about his work in an emerging area of patient safety, alarm fatigue. Brad is an Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and Critical Care at Johns Hopkins and is a core faculty member of the Armstrong Institute for Patient Safety and Quality. Before we begin, Brad, do you have any disclosures to share with the audience? Well, I received funding from uh, the federal government through the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, um, but that's uh, to do work that's unrelated to this. Interesting alarm fatigue has certainly increased in recent times. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Well, alarm fatigue is the desensitization um, that clinicians experience to frequent alarms, particularly alarms that don't provide any particularly useful clinical information. Um, what people commonly refer to as false alarms. And the impact that it can have is that desensitization can lead to clinicians ignoring alarms, disabling alarms, and of course that puts patients at at risk of real events going undetected or, or unnoticed. Brad, human beings have a natural tendency to tune out to some things. What can you tell us about the psychology of alarm fatigue? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a function of human psychology and human factors engineering. So, for example, I work in an ICU environment which uh, tends to have a lot of alarms because we have a lot of technology, ventilators, continuous physiological monitoring, um, IV pumps, etc. And all these devices have their own built-in alarms to alert you when the patient may be having a problem or when there's a, a device malfunction. And you know, it's interesting if you talk with uh, intensivists and ICU nurses, you know, they develop a sense of what is a real alarm or likely to be a real alarm and what is not. So you'll often you know, hear alarms going off all the time in an ICU, and particularly if you're a patient or a patient family member, you, know, you may wonder, why aren't these people responding to these alarms? Over time, we develop an innate sense of, you know, what's an alarm that's likely to be real, what's not likely to be real, and we kind of tune out, as you said, the background noise of what we perceive to be uh, likely false alarms. Now, the alarms tend to have uh, levels built into them. So, for example, if you're talking about a physiological alarm, typically, at least in the United States, the standard is that a life-threatening alarm on uh, EKG or other physiological monitor will typically have uh, a classic three-tone sequence, and that tends to alert people that that is very likely to be life-threatening. So, for example, something like ventricular fibrillation or asystole on a cardiac monitor. And people tend to retain that, that response reaction to that alarm. I mean, so I'm very conditioned, and all of my colleagues and nursing colleagues are all very conditioned. When we hear that, quote-unquote, triple alarm, we tend to react to it. But depending on how serious the likely alarm is going down in, in severity from that one, we tend to tune them out. So, for example, IV pump alarms you know, are almost always not an emergent or, or even urgent issue, and we tend to tune those out. 
uh, we kind of learn to recognize which ventilator alarms indicate that the patient may be disconnected from the ventilator versus something that is likely just to be that the person is coughing or there's some other you know, alteration that is not life-threatening. And so we kind of learn to do that. But the problem is, every once in a while, one of those alarms that we have learned to tune out um, because of the constant cacophony turns out to be real, and we make mistakes because of that, and that's the real risk to the patients, at least on the clinician side. There's also the problem on the side of the patient and the patient's family. You can imagine being a patient, particularly in an ICU, who's got all these alarms and all this noise going around them all the time. A, the patient you know, may not realize that they're okay, and these are just what people refer to as nuisance or false alarms. You know, a patient who's awake enough may constantly be in fear that something's going wrong with them because they're hearing the alarms going off. Same thing with their family members. Family members who are uninitiated, who don't have any medical training, may be sitting there in the room visiting, and I can tell you they often ask, you know, why is that alarm going off? Is that something serious? Um, and so it has a, an emotional and stress impact on the patient and on the family. And as you can imagine, uh, particularly in an ICU again or a step-down unit, these frequent false alarms not only create an alarm fatigue amongst the providers, they interrupt patient sleep. You can imagine it's got to be awfully hard to sleep with a lot of those alarms going off all the time. And given that we know, based on data in the literature, that a huge percentage of these alarms don't lead to anything that's actionable, they probably create more harm than they may actually have benefit. And, of course, that comes down to then is, well, how do we filter those alarms out so we reduce this, this, the impact of alarm fatigue on the providers, on the patients, and on their families without missing true events? And that becomes the real, the real nut that we have to try to, to figure out. Brad, how big a problem are we talking about here? There's presumably some information from sentinel events and so on. What's the magnitude of the problem that we're dealing with? I don't think we really know. We suspect that it is quite large. What little data we do know comes from uh, closed claim data. Uh, for example, when tort actions occur, when a patient has been harmed because of uh, alarms being disabled or being ignored. I can tell you I know of several instances where patients have died because of alarms being disabled or um, ignored. Um, but I think we've only touched the, the so-called tip of the iceberg here because a lot of this data winds up under peer review and confidential, and there's been no good systematic you know, review of how often this really leads to harm. Uh, there are some studies that, that suggest it's a lot more frequent than we realize. Um, and the harm you know, that, it, that it creates in terms of stress to the patient, stress to the family, and stress to uh, the clinicians is really barely been examined. Brad, in some of the literature that you quoted earlier, it makes mention of the number of alarms that go off in, in ICUs and other high care areas can be in the many hundreds per day, and up to 75% of these can be false positives. And that really raises the question, why do we have so many problems with these false positives? What are the root causes of all of these issues here? Well, it depends. A little bit of it depends on the, um, the actual alarm that you're looking at. So, for example, uh, electrocardiogram alarms, uh, arrhythmia alarms. The other estimates that the false alarm rate there is as high as 95 to 99%. I mean, an astronomical number of those alarms are false. Pulse oximetry alarms, probably not quite that high, but still very, very high. 
you know, ventilator alarms a little less than that. And so it, it depends on exactly which physiological parameter you're looking at and, again, also which kind of equipment you're, you're looking at, whether it's a physiological monitor or a ventilator or a dialysis machine. Part of the problem is the nature of a lot of the way of the ways we examine uh, a lot of these parameters. So, for example, if you're coming back to EKGs, uh, electrocardiograms, and pulse oximeters, uh, there's a lot of movement artifact, um, both from the patient's you know spontaneous movements um, as well as uh, you know uh, nursing care and physician care movements will often cause these devices to alarm because of the the way the measurements are actually taken. And the companies that, that make these devices uh, you know, certainly spent lots of engineering hours and lots of engineering dollars trying to filter out these alarms. Um, and the folks I know at, uh, at the University of San Francisco um, have done a lot of work looking at uh, the various databases that are available of EKG data, trying to figure out you know, how we can filter out these uh, artifactual or, or non-actual alarms from what are, are true alarms. So that's a big problem is just by the nature of the way these things are measured, they're, they're, some of them are very prone to a variety of electrical or other artifactual problems. Other ones are just, for example, a, a ventilator alarm. Uh, some of them are just based on the patient's physiologies. So if a patient coughs and they, there's a large back pressure against the ventilator circuit, you know, the ventilator may wind up with a, uh, sensing a very high pressure in the circuit. And, of course, the ventilator has a high pressure alarm built on it. Now, that high pressure alarm is designed to let us know when, for example, the endotracheal tube is plugged or if there's an obstruction in the circuit. It's not really supposed to let us know about a patient coughing because that you know, is not necessarily an issue. Um, but by the nature of the way that's measured, it measures the pressure. It can't distinguish between whether the patient is coughing or whether there's an obstruction in the ventilator circuit, so it alarms. Um, so you know, each of these devices have their own manufacturers. Um, the manufacturers uh, put these alarms in to try to provide an uh, element of safety in their machines. Um, and I suspect some of it, uh, you know, particularly in the United States, is driven by torque concerns. They want to make sure that their machines are safe and that they're not going to be held liable because the machine failed to recognize um, that there was a malfunction or there was a change in the patient's condition. But again, that inherent process, trying to be conservative on that end, probably also contributes to a lot of these uh, false or non-actual alarms because, again, there's a lack of discrimination whether it's a non-actionable event or it's an actionable event. You know, one approach that we talked about in our, in our paper um, that we published in Critical Care Medicine uh, uh, just recently is, and the work that's been done uh, by a number of investigators is how to try to link a lot of these parameters together to try to add some discrimination. So, for example, coming back to the EKG example where there's been a lot of work because, again, as you mentioned, EKG alarms tend to be uh, the ones that have a huge uh, false alarm rate, is to try to contextualize and or link the EKG to other parameters. So, for example, there's been a lot of work done, again, at, at San Francisco, where they have tried to take the EKG arrhythmia and compare it, uh, for example, patients who have invasive arterial blood pressure line monitoring, so you actually have a pulse waveform. If the EKG suddenly reads asystole, or ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia, and you've still got an arterial waveform, 
that suggests the blood pressure hasn't changed at all, you can use that information to su- try to suppress that alarm because clearly that patient has not ha- uh, developed a non-perfusing rhythm because they still have a, uh, an arterial pulse waveform. You could probably also do it based on a pulse ox waveform as well. But when the waveform is lost, as well as having the electrical abnormality on the EKG, you say, okay, that is probably a real event. And the folks who have looked at these annotated uh, records and tried to figure out how to best do this have found that they can eliminate a large percentage of these uh, false alarms. In particular, for asystole, uh, I know the work has shown that you can essentially eliminate false alarms for asystole. Ventricular tachycardia is a little harder to do as well on without losing some true alarms. So there's always going to be a balance in the sensitivity and specificity there. So there's a lot of encouraging work about how we can do this. Um, Another technique that's actually been used that focuses not so much on the alarm and the machine technology um, comes back to the human element. You know, how can we do a better job as humans in setting the alarms so we're not necessarily going to default alarm settings that are going to generate a lot of false alarms? How can we customize those uh, for individual patients? Uh, A lot of uh, work has been done around doing uh, what are called alarm rounds. So each day, uh, the nurses and the physicians will review the alarms from the day before and determine whether somebody, uh, an individual, needs to have their alarms adjusted, either up, down, or whatever. And there's been a lot of work bringing those teamwork elements along with the technological elements together to actually have a, a synergistic effect. In fact, I know uh, Dr. Mike DeVita, I don't know if it's actually published yet. I know uh, it should be coming out soon if it hasn't been. I actually recently sent in a paper reporting uh, a multifaceted um, alarm reduction strategy, which some other folks have also done similar work that show that you can really drop uh, these non-actual alarms by combination of uh, adjusting technologies on the devices as well as uh, a teamwork elements to assess who needs to be uh, monitored with these devices and where you want to set these parameters. Right. I think there's also been some work on stopping these erroneous alarms from occurring in the first place, things like making sure that EKG dots are uh, properly adherent to the skin and those types of things. What can you tell us about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Again, you know, besides the electronics in the devices, the interface between the devices and the patients, a lot of folks have looked at how we can do uh, better. There are successful projects that have been described in the literature where people have developed um, much better interfaces. So, for example, the, uh, what you were alluding to is the EKGs. Poor quality contact between uh, an interface with a patient is going to lead to electrical noise and false alarms. And so improving the quality of those materials uh, can go a long way. You know, in the end, there's going to be no one magic solution, right? We're going to have to try to do things where we can contextualize alarms, um, look at the uh, interaction between uh, different alarms to see which ones can help cancel out other ones. So, for example, when they're not congruent, like the example I gave before about the EKG and the blood pressure, teamwork elements, um, the interface between the person and the devices, it's going to really require a multifaceted approach to really control this problem. And people are beginning to to realize that this is a real problem and beginning to address um, uh, these kind of multifaceted approaches. You're never going to effectively reduce 
all of these non-actionable alarms with a single strategy. It's going to take multiple strategies uh, because, again, the alarms are coming from a lot of different machines. What works for a physiological EKG monitor isn't necessarily that approach isn't necessarily going to work well for a ventilator and IV pump. Everything's kind of got to have its um, its individual approach and then pulling all everything together in an aggregate approach. Brad, another thing that seems to appear in the literature on alarm fatigue is the concept of centralising alarm monitoring. Where does that fit into this? Uh, you mean in terms of like creating uh, monitor bunkers, for, for lack of a better description? That's exactly right. Um, yeah. yeah, bringing bringing all the device uh, alarms together in a central location, and uh, so the alarms are not going off in the patient area. Um, I think a lot of folks have a lot of discomfort with that. You know, this is just, that's just my own sort of anecdotal experience, not necessarily based on the literature. I think people have been trained and come up through a system where they are so used to having the alarms at the device level right there in the room. It's going to be really hard to get people to move away from that, although I think that's a, a, an important piece. Um, I know I've been doing a project lately where we've been doing surveillance monitoring on general hospital wards where we do not have the device's alarm in the patient's room. They only alarm at a central station, and they automatically send those alarms directly to nurse pagers or nurse uh, uh, mobile phone devices, so they don't actually bother the patient or occur inside the patient's room. So that's sort of a halfway step to, I think, what you were describing uh, of the sort of uh, the monitor bunker with the alarms. You know, I think that's a potential uh, solution, although the one downside of that is um, when you do get critical alarms, you now have uh, put a communication step in between. So the person who's sitting in the bunker who's watching all these devices um, has to now communicate back to the frontline staff. So that will potentially put an inherent delay in the process of recognition and response. Whether that turns out to be a problem in terms of uh, patient harm or whether it doesn't really make a difference at all is something I think we need to discern. The other problem with that is uh, with the bunker mentality or the bunker approach is if you're going to do that, I think you have to make sure that the people who are sitting watching these monitors and surveilling all of these devices, looking, listening for these alarms, you can't overburden them as well because you know, all you're doing is transferring the alarm fatigue over to another group of people. Now, while they may be professional alarm watchers or monitors, you want to be careful that you don't overload them as well. So the exact number of monitors that a monitor tech can safely keep track of and notify staff of real actionable alarms without causing collateral problems to other patients during that communication process, I don't think we know how many devices that may be. Uh, my suspicion is it's not a lot. So in actuality, you'd potentially have to have a fairly large uh, army of people doing this in the, in the centralized monitoring station. Uh, I don't think we know how to do that quite uh, well yet. I mean, a lot of hospitals do do that. But I don't know if we uh, really have a lot of good science to guide us as to what's the safest and best way uh, uh, to do that. The great advantage of it, though, is it would be taking a lot of the uh, alarm distraction and stress away from the patient um, and, and from the family members. You can imagine that a patient might be able to get a lot better sleep if none of the devices in the room that they're attached to are going off in the middle of the night, but that somebody's watching it very carefully and that an appropriate response occurs 
when actually uh, when something actually actionable happens. You know, I, I just don't know if we know how to do that well enough and not uh, have un- have unintended consequences right now. Brad, many thanks for joining us on the podcast today and sharing your insights into this important problem. Oh, you're very welcome. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash care for more information. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Todd Fraser. This podcast is supported by an unrestricted educational grant provided by Medtronic. Any statements, opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations contained in the podcast are strictly those of the host and interviewee and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Medtronic or any of its affiliates, including Covidian. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute medical or professional clinical advice. Todd Fraser, MD, is an intensive care and retrieval medicine physician from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. He is a staff specialist at Nusa Hospital and is the founder of Osler Technology, a clinical certification and training system. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.